Well, good morning, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. I wanted you to know right out of the gate that I've already submitted the paperwork for sainthood for that 18-year-old that sunk the shot at the Michigan game last night. Come on now. That was awesome. I also wanted to show you a picture uh, that was taken this past Monday. This is the addition. You can see the new auditorium right on the other side of this wall, um, and then you can see the additional children's space, which is the clean roof next to the dirty roof. That's how I kind of figured it out. Um, and so, yeah, exciting things are underway. And with that, just a thank you. Uh, it's inconvenient on different levels for all of us, and you have taken the corner with us with grace, and we're so, so thankful. Uh, we will be in the building before we know it. So good stuff. Um, now, as far as our content for today, um, as many of you know, we're approaching the end of a series that we've called The Story of Us. And we decided to take the eight weeks leading up to Easter and present what I believe to be the eight most important ideas found in the New Testament of your Bible. Uh, they form the foundation of the text and really the foundation of the Christian faith. Along with that, hundreds of us have been reading the New Testament for ourselves during this stretch. And if that's you, two weeks to go, right? The finish line is in sight. And plus, next week, you get to read Revelation and send me a bunch of emails like, what in the world is going on? So just something to look forward to uh, with that. But, but for today, um, I want to spin back to a concept that we unpacked a couple of weeks ago during a talk that we called Scandalous Grace. I want to talk to you a little bit more about grace today and the implications of it. A few weeks back, we, we noted that peace with God is a gift that can't be earned. It must simply be received. It isn't anything that you make happen. Rather, you wake up to the fact that something has already happened on your behalf, and by receiving the gift offered to you by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, you can come to peace with God. And so this idea of grace shows up over and over again in the New Testament, especially those letters that happen after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And I want to show you just one passage that I think really communicates this idea clearly. It's written by a pastor named Paul to Christians living in the fourth largest city in the world at the time, the city of Ephesus. To this group of believers, he says the following. Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and, and it's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so Paul really couldn't be any clearer. Peace with God, something the Bible calls salvation, is not caused by our goodness, and we don't lose it by our lack of goodness. Peace with God doesn't happen because we follow enough rules. It doesn't happen because we are good. Paul says it happens because he, God, is good. And so with that foundational understanding, I want to chase down a question with you today that sort of falls out of this observation. And maybe it's something you've thought, maybe it's something you've verbalized. For a bunch of us, it just sort of lurks in our subconscious. We'll put it up on the screen. It goes like this. If following rules doesn't make us right with God, and, and if we're honest, many of us grew up in religious traditions where it was all about following rules. If following rules doesn't make us right with God, then what exactly is the role of rules? Because if you've been paying attention as you've been reading the New Testament, you know that there are a ton of rules, right? Things to do, things not to do. But if they don't exist to make us right with God or help us be right with God, then why do they exist at all? It's a great question. And, and so what I want to do to begin to answer it is show you something Jesus said one day when he's midway through his public ministry and he's approached by the Jewish religious establishment. They're trying to get Jesus 
to conflict with their tradition and, or Moses to separate Jesus from the people because people really liked Jesus and they weren't as fond of religious leaders. Can you imagine such a situation in a social context? But anyway, here's the context. Matthew, who was there, an early Jesus follower, recorded it for us. It says this. Matthew tells us, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were sort of one religious political party in Jesus' day. They were the ones that controlled the temple in Jerusalem and had turned it into a tourist trap. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, now these were the religious leaders who were obsessed with the Old Testament law, obsessed with keeping the Old Testament law, obsessed as being as good as they possibly could be in light of the rules given, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, again, another reference to the Old Testament law, tested him with this question. Teacher, he says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So there are 613 of these things, Jesus. Which one do you think is most important? And you should know that the Pharisees in the first century had made their full-time job rule-following. They took the commands, they debated them, they ranked them, and they argued about what it meant to follow God by following the commands. They were obsessive about not breaking the rules because they believed that where they stood with God had to do with how well they kept the rules. I mean, a, a normal, natural thought. But they were so obsessive that they actually created guardrails or fences around God's rules so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking God's rules. They wanted to stay as far out of trouble as possible. And if you're wondering what that would look like in our context, I think of Baptist friends that I had growing up that were not ever allowed to go to school dances. You with me on this? Yeah, because, well, school dances are awkward. No, because the parents said, well, if you go to the dance, it isn't so much the dancing that's the problem, but you know where that can lead, right? I'm like drinking punch. I have no idea where that could lead. But yeah, you, so, so it's like, we're going to make sure our kids don't even get close to trouble. We're going to keep them out of trouble. They did it back then. We still do it today. And so the, the Pharisees were constantly debating how they could avoid breaking the rules and also debating which rules were most important. And this becomes really, really critical for them because there were times where God had told you two different things, and in order to keep one of the rules, you had to break the other. There was no way in certain situations that you could honor both rules simultaneously, so you had to determine which was more important, or in the language of the first century, which was weightier or heavier and which was lighter. Just imagine with me if you're a Pharisee and you're trying to keep all the rules at your full-time job and your neighbor has something happen to him, doesn't really happen to us anymore, but he falls into his well, okay? And it's just kind of awkward, but yeah. So your neighbor's on the bottom of his well and calling out to the friend, the Pharisee, hey, you know, help. And the Pharisee realizes it's the Sabbath, it's Saturday, and God said very specifically in the Ten Commandments, do no work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are convinced that any sort of manual labor, including helping your neighbor out of the well, Makes, means you're going to break the rules. So you have this really awkward conversation with your neighbor. You know, sorry, Bob, uh, if you're still there tomorrow, I'll see what I can do, right? And so they were obsessive about not breaking the rules. And in that, those days, they had decided that the command to love the neighbor was not as important as the command to keep the Sabbath because, of course, the Ten Commandments contain the command about the Sabbath. So with that context, a Pharisee walks up to Jesus and asks him to identify the greatest commandment. Jesus, what's the one thing that's most important? And not surprisingly, Jesus' response is brilliant because he's Jesus and really illuminating. Here's what he says. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said, this 
is the first and greatest command. And you should know that the Pharisees would have agreed with Jesus. In fact, in the first century, every religious teacher that, who has had any sort of teaching survive would affirm that the greatest command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, this command is so significant that if you're an Orthodox Jew, it still is the framework of your life to this day. The command is called the Shema in Hebrew, and Shema just means hear or listen, which is sort of the first word where this command shows up in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Um, but in, in the Shema, they would say, everything has to be in light of this reality. So the first thing in the morning, they recite the Shema. The last thing at night, they recite the Shema. They book in their lives with this idea, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, the question, of course, that falls out of this, even for us to this day, is, okay, that's great. How, how do you do that, right? So at this point, they're nodding at Jesus, but Jesus isn't done talking. He says this in the next verse. So he's just said, love the Lord your God, first and greatest command. Then he says this, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the Pharisees asked Jesus to identify the greatest commandment, and Jesus identifies two. And you want to go, time out, Jesus. You can't do that. That's like when you ask your three-year-old his favorite color, and he says red and blue. You're like, you don't get two favorite colors, right? But I guess Jesus is Jesus, so he gets it, right? But what appears on the surface to be a contradiction, like, well, okay, how can the second be like it or the second be equivalent to it? How does that even work, Jesus? Is actually a brilliant commentary. Because what Jesus is suggesting here is that the command to love your neighbor as you love yourself answers the question, how do you love God? And they knew something about these two commands that 2,000 years later we often miss, but these commands both contain in them the same Hebrew word, the word ve'ahavta. Now, just because I had to study Hebrew for a year, you get to see a Hebrew word because there's some value there because you can tell it's totally, the word on top says ve'ahavta. Thank you. Right. Ve'ahavta means and you shall love. And so what they would have understood when Jesus pulls these commands together is that because of the similarity in the Hebrew word and the way that they thought about the Hebrew language, they believe these commands now were linked. And maybe they'd been linked all along, but Jesus shows them something that they had missed. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor like you love yourself. How do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? You love God by loving your neighbor like you love yourself. But Jesus isn't done yet. I think they're still kind of confused. And again, he keeps talking. Then he says this, all the law and the prophets, meaning, okay, you just pulled out, there's 613 commands, you just pulled out two. So the 611 other commands hang on these two. And I think they would have been offended and I think they would have been stunned because they had built their tradition and built their lives around radical obedience to rules so that they could know where they stood with God. And Jesus is teaching that if you love your neighbor like you love yourself, you don't need any of the other rules. Literally, in Jesus' teaching, love is to be the defining ethic of a life. And if you love, then everything else will fall into place. And this was a revolutionary idea. I mean, this is unprecedented and revolutionary. And so not surprisingly, as you read the New Testament, you read those letters written to early Christians, you see this come up over and over and over again because early Christians like us tended to try to reduce religion to rule following. And so these early letters, they were encouraged over and over again. They were pointed back to the one thing that was supposed to define everything else. 
In fact, there's a letter that we've read quite a bit in this series. It's called Galatians. It was written to a group of Christians living in Galatia, which was a region in the Roman Empire, modern-day Turkey. Here's what Paul says to these Christians. He says, the entire law, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. You say, ah, love the Lord your God with all... No, that's not what he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. You say, Paul, wait a minute. What about loving God? He's like, no, no, you love your neighbor. That's how you demonstrate the fact that you love God. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor. And if you do, again, you demonstrate your love for God. And this sounds encouraging, but it also comes with a challenge. Because you say, okay, Paul, but what if I'm not loving my neighbor? What, what is that demonstrating as far as my relationship to God? Well, there's another letter written by a Jesus follower named John to some early Christians. Here's what John says. He says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And the implications of this teaching are stunning if you let it spin in your heart for a bit, because you, you think about how many of us have experienced religion, and how it was about rules, and how it was about rituals, and by Engaging in the rituals and following the rules, we could sort of know where we stood with God or know that we were at peace with God. And the reason this is so toxic is when this happens, it's easy to miss the sort of revolution Jesus came to launch. I've had conversations with friends over the years that would confess that they felt guiltier about missing church than by mistreating a coworker. And when you consider what Jesus says, you start to realize if that is the reality they're living in, that's an adventure in missing the point. Because Jesus would say, no, 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 you demonstrate your love for God, not out of church attendance, but, but rather out of the way you love. Or other friends that over the years have had conversations with me, and, and what they're asking, not often this clearly, but how close to the line of sin can I get without actually sinning? Like, right? Teenagers in dating relationships had this conversation hundreds of times, right? So like, what can I do? I want to get right up to the line, but then I know if I cross a certain line, then, then I think God will be mad at me. So how close can I get to sin without sinning? Because I don't want God to be mad at me. And the problem with this question is that it ignores the fact that when you sin, you are hurting people who you were called to love. So the whole, how close can I get to sin without sinning? It's like, how close can I get to really hurting people without actually hurting people? And you reframe it like that, and you think, well, that's a bad, that's a bad question. And I think that's partly why Jesus introduces us to this defining ethic. I think of other friends uh, who believe there's a ritual that can make them right with God. And, and so they do something, and they feel conviction about it, and they go and they, they tell someone about it. And they sort of are reminded of, of the grace that God has for them. And that in itself is not bad. But, but what that can do is it can remove any sort of obligation on their hearts to go make it right with the person they actually harmed, which is what love would require if they were going to love their neighbor. In all three of these cases, it's like the view of religion keeps you from loving someone else. And this is not what Jesus had in mind for his followers. He said, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And as you're loving your neighbor, you're loving God. And man, if you can do those two things, which really are doing the one thing, then everything else will fall into place. Which brings us back to the question that we started with. Okay, so then what's the role of rules? I mean, the New Testament is full of rules. Things to do, things not to do. Okay, I, if following rules doesn't make me right with God, 
why are the rules there at all? And I would suggest this. Um, I would suggest that the Bible's rules are simply examples of what love requires in a specific situation. So as you're reading the New Testament, even you read the Old Testament, you're like, okay, what is that rule really about? You say, what's the heart behind the rule? I think the heart behind the rule is trying to help you say, okay, this is what love is going to require in this specific situation in your life. If you want to do what love requires, this is sort of the rule that will guide you. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, let's look at one of the Ten Commandments to get us going. So uh, these were the first rules ever given to people on planet Earth. I mean, God speaks to the nation of Israel that he had rescued from slavery in Egypt, and the voice booms from Mount Sinai. And I actually found a picture of Mount Sinai on the interweb. Check out this out. Isn't this cool? Now, uh, Mount Sinai is actually a range. Sinai is a range of mountains, so we're not exactly sure which mountain was the mountain. But if you go there, they will point to one and let you hike it for $27. And you can buy a t-shirt, and there's a guy with a camera. He'll take your picture at the top, but I just didn't do that, so here's your picture. Uh, so Mount Sinai, the rules that fell from the voice of God to his people, one of them was this. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Essentially, God tells his people to tell the truth. And you say, okay, so if I want to honor God with my life, I should tell the truth. And I should tell the truth because God tells me in the Bible to tell the truth. And, and that is the wrong answer, even though that is a true statement. Jesus would want his followers to tell the truth because when you lie to someone, you hurt someone. And when you hurt someone, you're not loving them. And the reason the rule is given isn't to try to control your behavior. The reason the rule is given is because God loves people and wants you to love people too. So that's one, one situation. Let's look at another one from a New Testament letter. Um, this one is written by Paul uh, to his protege, a younger pastor by the name of Timothy. Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus at the time. So major cosmopolitan center, wealthy people in the church, people who need a lot of resource help in the church. To this group, he writes these words. Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world, so those that have a lot of material means, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. So question, do you know why followers of Jesus are supposed to be generous? Well, we're supposed to be generous because the Bible tells us to be generous. That is true, but again, that is not the right reason. Uh, are we supposed to be generous because if we give, then God will bless us? Or are we supposed to give so, because if we don't give, God will be mad at us? And those are other ideas that sort of fly around, but I think it's really more simple than that. We're supposed to be generous because it helps the person that we're being generous to, right? It's like if our defining ethic is supposed to do whatever love requires, then in that situation, he's like, listen, there's people in your community who need help. And there's people that have extra. So man, just tell them to share. Because that's what love requires in that particular context. The, the rule to be generous really isn't about your relationship with God. If you're a Christian and you've accepted grace, then you and God are fine. So Paul says, in light of that, command them to be generous. That's how you love your neighbor in a very practical way. And when you love your neighbor, you're demonstrating your love for God. You start to realize how, how simple this is and yet how revolutionary this is. Let's just do one more uh, from another one of Paul's letters to early Christians. He says this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
Essentially, Paul says to early Christians, be careful with your words because words shape reality. They're powerful and they're either making things more or less like God wants them to be. So if you want to be someone who embodies love, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. There's commands against gossip because gossip hurts people. Gossip shapes reality in toxic ways. And so it undermines someone else's integrity in the minds of other people. When you gossip, you elevate yourself above someone else's experience. You just simply can't love your neighbor and simultaneously be gossiping about them. And so there's a rule which really is an application of what love requires. Paul says, don't gossip and don't lie and don't be stingy to people in need. Again, the bottom line is just all the Bible's rules are really just examples of what love requires. And, and here's why this is so powerful. Like, God didn't give us a rule for any and every situation. And he didn't need to. Because the defining ethic of love was supposed to be our guide. And, and so the rules we have, they're really not there for our benefit. They're for the benefit of others. I mean, we will benefit if we follow them, but they're not there for our benefit. And they're not there for God's benefit. God is fine. They're there for the benefit of the people that we are called to love. They're there for the sake of others, just like Jesus came for the sake of others. And I'm aware at this point, if you grew up in a religious tradition that really elevated rule following, and it's not hard to find people with that background, you may have an objection and it's fair. You're thinking, it can't possibly be that simple. Like, aren't you just throwing out the details? I, I mean, isn't this like, a big like Woodstock festival for Christians, like we're just going to have a big love fest, right? I mean, isn't that kind of what it's about? I mean, do I have to buy a VW bus to follow Jesus? That's really what I'm asking, right? Because that's, that's what I'm hearing you say. How does that work? And, and if that's you, I, I need you to lean in and, and just, here, here's what you need to know. The way of Jesus isn't complicated, but it is demanding. The way of Jesus isn't complicated, but it is demanding, and we can't ever forget this. At the center of Christianity is a man that people believed was the Son of God, and at the center of the Christian faith is a man who died covered in his own blood because that's what love required. That's how far this can go. So this way of Jesus is more simple than religion, but it's also far more demanding and here's how I know that. Um, those of us who are raised in religion know it's easy to hide in the rules. It's easy to find loopholes to kind of work around the rules to keep us from doing what love requires and allow us to not do something that we really want to do. It's easy to find loopholes to justify our unwillingness to love. We can say things like, well, I don't really think what that, that's what that command means, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, I mean, Jesus never mentioned it, so I don't know if it's that big a deal, or, or Paul said this in a letter here, but he said something else over here, and so this is kind of like a contradiction, or we might say, well, that's in the Old Testament, and I'm not sure all of that really applies to us anymore, and, so, and here's the thing, when we focus on the rules, like, we're always looking for a workaround, right? It's like our, the U.S. tax code, that's why it's a lovely three-page document, note the cynical humor there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's how it works, and this, in fact, was one of Jesus' main struggles with the Pharisees. They were constantly trying to follow the rules, and they were constantly, simultaneously looking for workarounds. And so 
the challenge is the life that they actually embodied didn't honor God in the way that the rule following would have if it had flowed out of love. One day Jesus actually says something to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and you, just, you can just hear the anger and the frustration in his voice, just how much they're missing the point. Matthew records it for us. Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. We all know like, what a hypocrite is, but it's like you actors, you pretenders. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs, which are beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. Like your robes are clean, you present yourself well, you know all the right things to say, but on the inside, this is the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and, and wickedness because what's driving your behavior, it, it isn't love. And love is the engine on which the universe is supposed to run. And you've been invited by the God of creation to embody that love. And you've missed it. You've missed it. And here's the thing. When Jesus said this to these guys, I think they knew. Because they weren't finding life in there. They were finding influence politically and religiously. But deep down, they knew that there was hypocrisy and that their hearts were not beating in rhythm with the heart of God. Friends, this is why the Christian faith can be so spectacular. When you really follow Jesus, there's no place to hide. It's like there's no loopholes or shortcuts or workarounds. A couple of weeks ago, um, I shared a, a question that was posed by a pastor down in Atlanta named Andy Stanley years ago, and I think it just brilliantly encapsulates this whole concept. He, he said to a room full of church leaders, he said, hey, if you don't know what to do, you're a follower of Jesus, you engage in a situation, you don't know what to do, he says, here's what you need to ask. You ask the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? In this situation, in this context, with these people, what is love telling me to do? How do I love my neighbor in the situation like I love myself? Because if you can ask that question, it burns off so much of the fog of confusion. And I think this, capture, this question captures the essence of following Jesus. And again, if you're tending to think, man, this really feels like easy and watered down, remember something. When your heavenly father asked this question, it cost him his son. And when Jesus asked this question, it cost him his life. And then he said to you and to me, follow me. Follow me and learn what it's like to embody what love requires. One of my um, hobbies that is not shared by many folks is reading church history. Thank you. <laughs> right? Hey, what you reading? Uh, yeah, church history. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but here's what you find when you read the church history. In the first century, so the first hundred years of the Christian tradition, they had no structure. They had no Bible. There were letters being passed around with these that later became the New Testament. They had rich and poor, men and women, slave and free, gathered around the idea that Jesus had died for them and had risen from the grave. And they didn't know much, but they knew they were called to love. And with that understanding, they engaged their world and eventually turned the Roman Empire on its head. Can you imagine that people were confused about what they believed, but they were captivated by the way they treated 
other people. It's what they did and it's what we're called to do today. All of which brings us to our big idea for this morning. Devotion to God is demonstrated by love for others. And, and just imagine with me, what if we got that right even a little bit? How that would change our families, how that would change our workplaces, how that could change our community. Friends, how that could change our world. The way of Jesus turned, turned the world upside down once it can happen again. Would you stand? I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the beautiful simplicity of the message of your Son. That he invited us into a way of life, a flow that can change everything. And so I pray that that, that question, what does love require of me, would just haunt us this week and this month and this year. That when we found ourselves confused about what to do, that question would bring us clarity and would ultimately bring us closer to the sort of life that you have in mind for us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came among us as one of us to show us, to die for us, and to offer us hope for the future. It is in his name, the name above all names that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.